Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether it's a risky business to tell your enemy you'd like to see them assassinated. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been incredibly alarming for me, and I worry that it may foretell a new era of heightened tensions between uh, the various great powers, or a new era of bullying of smaller nations by their larger neighbours. I've also been very concerned that the current situation could escalate and draw in more countries than the ones that are currently involved, ultimately potentially leading to widespread use of nuclear weapons. While that seems like an unlikely outcome, it would be one of the worst catastrophes to before humanity in its entire history, so it bears uh, keeping that possibility in mind. To understand the situation better, I was very keen to speak to someone who had extensive experience tracking Russia, Ukraine, the tensions between them, and ideally uh, nuclear security issues as well. Listeners put forward a lot of guest suggestions, and out of those, we picked Samuel Charup for reasons that will become very apparent in just a second. In a brisk hour together, we tackle why this war happened, why it happened now, whether Ukraine can win, what NATO is doing right and wrong, no-fly zones, ways the war might escalate out of control, how likely that is to happen, whether there's any good path out of the war, and if so, how it might be achieved. Samuel really helped me understand the challenges that we face better than I, than I had before, even having researched the questions that I put to him for many dozens of hours since the war began. For future reference, this conversation was recorded on Thursday the 10th of March 2022. Okay, without further ado, I bring you Samuel Charup. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Charup. Sam is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. His research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states and US-Russia deterrence, strategic stability and arms control, topics he has been working on for well over a decade. In the past, Sam has been Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and a Senior Advisor for Arms Control at the US Department of State. In 2017, Sam co-authored a book on the Ukraine crisis called Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. Before that, Sam did a PhD in political science at the University of Oxford, was a visiting scholar at the International Centre for Policy Studies in Kyiv, and was a Fulbright Scholar at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. And as if that wasn't enough to make him the right person for this conversation, he speaks both Russian and Ukrainian. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. I hope to talk about the risk of nuclear escalation and how to reduce it. But first, there's been a lot of debate online the last few weeks about what is Putin's true motive or reason for launching this war. In particular, there's been quite heated discussion between those who think a key motive is making Russia's borders more defensible and those who believe that that's not an important factor. Yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that question? So I think, you know, it's it's not 100% clear cut one way or the other. I think the the bottom line is that this issue that is Ukraine for Russia has been you know, a near existential one for, you know, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that they've regarded Ukraine as a core piece of their national security and sort of losing Ukraine from the Russian elite perspective was never going to be acceptable. So I think, you know, ultimately it was driven by what, you know, their threat perceptions and their understanding of national security and how that manifested itself. Of course, obviously there's some contingent factors there, but it, it does seem, you know, it's not necessarily protecting Russia from some imminent threat, but just this idea that if Russia loses Ukraine to the West, if, if Ukraine becomes a sort of Western bridgehead, then, you know, Russian security is fundamentally threatened. I think that prospect is ultimately what drove Russian decision making. 
Yeah. I guess people who don't like that theory tend to say something like, well, you know, Ukraine wasn't about to join NATO. It wasn't super likely that was about to happen. And then also, like, do the Russians really think we're going to invade Russia? Like, that Russia's actually, like, under threat militarily? And also, like, doesn't NATO already have a border with Russia through the Baltic states? Uh, That's the kind of skeptical opinions that I've heard back. So really, you know, if you're sitting, first of all, it really doesn't matter what we think about the probabilities of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO or the implications of Ukraine's de facto integration with NATO. It's what the Russians think, because ultimately they're the ones making the decisions. Mm. And so I think they have ample reason to think that this is certainly on the table. We have promised all NATO allies that Ukraine and Georgia, quote unquote, will become members of the alliance. Ukraine became an enhanced opportunities partner of NATO last year, which sounds like bureaucratic jargon, but it means that they essentially, you know, fully integrated, have the opportunities for full integration to NATO activities, everything short of Article 5. It's almost, it's the status that Finland has, which is probably NATO's closest partner hmm. and most capable one. And, you know, the the UK was building ports on the Black Sea. The US was providing ever more lethal assistance. The Turks were providing armed drones. And, you know, Russia wasn't getting anywhere on its desired outcome from the Minsk process, which ultimately was about, I think, you know, sort of creating a political lever over decision-making in Kiev. So, you know, I do think that the Russian elite saw the prospect of trend lines heading in the wrong direction, that is, over time, basically losing Ukraine. Hmm. And that is what drove, ultimately, the decision. Now, none of this is to justify what's happened. What's happened is horrible and atrocious and potentially a war crime, or many. But I think it's important to understand, you know, their motives and what what they were thinking when these decisions were taken. Hmm. So, you know, even if it's not the immediate prospect of NATO membership, it's the prospect that essentially... Russia would lose its influence over Ukraine over time. And whether or not it's a de jure member, it might well become uh, so deeply integrated that it does pose that threat. And, you know, Russia does think that the West or the current Russian government at least does think that the West would sort of prefer its ouster and goes about achieving that in various ways. And that sounds paranoid and ridiculous, but well, maybe not anymore because some people are openly talking about assassinating Putin, but uh, it might have sounded paranoid a few weeks ago, but that I think is how they see things. Right. And I guess the reason to start this war now rather than just buy their time and um, consider military intervention years from now is that Ukraine is getting better able to defend itself over time by integrating with other countries and by buying this equipment such that starting a war in three years time could be substantially more difficult than doing it now. That's right. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of how prospect theory affects, you know, understands decision making. In other words, when leaders are in a loss prevention mindset, when when they're thinking about the status quo being intolerable and potentially getting worse, the emphasis is put on the cost of inaction. Mm. So you have to do something. And that can drive uh, decisions to to act now to preempt potential future threats. And I think, you know, what I was struck by is that after 2015, when the Minsk agreements were signed, but, you know, subsequently not implemented, Russia seemed to be playing a long game. But at some point, I think in 2020, 2021, they decided that actually the long game was not favoring them and that they needed to act. So it's now or never. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, what's something important that the US or NATO or the EU could have and should have done differently in the past? 
So it's a tough question uh, in part because while Putin is unleashing this war, it's hard to focus on anything other than the Russian actions. And none of this is to excuse Russian behavior. But the policy pursued after the Maidan revolution and the subsequent annexation of Crimea and support for an insurgency in the Donbass was, in my view, never going to be sustainable over the long term. In other words, the West's strategic objective openly stated was to essentially create a defeat for Russia in Ukraine to to Mm. really, you know, anchor Ukraine in the West, minimize Russian influence. And that was never going to be something that Russia would accept. So it seemed to me, you know, as early as 2017, a matter of time before something, you know, changes here that Russia would take actions to change the status quo. And there weren't efforts to really find a sustainable alternative. There was a sense that, okay, we can keep the conflict more or less frozen in the Donbass. Russia's not getting what it wants, but it's not going to do anything about it. Mm. And I think that was a miscalculation. If I had to point to one other thing, it's this issue about the principle of the right of a country's right to make its own sovereign decisions about its foreign policy. Mm. That has become a sort of mantra that I think has come to mean things that actually it doesn't. Ukraine, of course, has the right to decide that it aspires to NATO membership. But NATO has the right to decide, you know, which countries can join its alliance or not. Mm. And, you know, the reality was and is that Ukraine is not on a membership track, that there is no consensus within the alliance for offering it one. So when Russia made this issue centrally about Ukraine's geopolitical status, its alignment or non-alignment and potential in the future, that we had to focus on this issue of freedom of choice, essentially, as opposed to the reality of what NATO policy is, which is that actually Ukraine is not on a membership track. You know, I don't know if that would have stopped the war, prevented the war, that is, but it was certainly something that uh, it was Russia's number one issue in in their long list and the one that they said unless it was addressed, nothing else really mattered. And that one struck me as, you know, they're essentially asking us not to do something we have no intention of doing. So it shouldn't shouldn't be so hard to talk about. But I think because of this principle and the the sort of rhetorical jousting around it, it it became a... uh, Made it hard to, to commit to that. Yeah, yeah. What are the aspects of the Minsk agreements that were not implemented? So from Russia, this was uh, an agreement that was essentially imposed on Ukraine after a battlefield defeat in February 2015. And the short version of what it entailed was that Russia would get an outsized political lever in Ukraine via the sort of hyper empowerment of these pro-Russian separatist regions and a renegotiated Ukrainian constitution. Um, The details were left out, but clearly based on subsequent proposals that became public about what Russia had in mind about the constitutional changes, this was the means by which Russia would essentially achieve a neutral Ukraine, a non-aligned Ukraine. And that political process never went anywhere. There were some, you know, the ceasefire, you know, the number of of deaths along the line of contact dramatically decreased after the signing of Minsk II, but the political process never moved anywhere. Mm. And, you know, you could understand why from the Ukrainian perspective, they would be quite reticent to do that because, It would entail, you know, implementing some serious concessions. And I think, you know, that was ultimately the sort of stalemate that emerged. And I think Russia became convinced that that process was going nowhere. Hmm. So Ukraine has been managing to delay the advance of the Russian military much more than most people expected it to. But in terms of, you know, 
just outright military equipment, they remain massively outnumbered. And from his statements, at least, Putin seems really committed to continuing the invasion, even if it drags out and becomes very costly and potentially requires lengthy artillery bombardment of cities or kind of siege warfare. What's the chance that if Ukraine can bog down the Russian military over the next few weeks or months, that, you know, growing logistical or financial or social pressures or pressures within the Russian military could actually then make it impractical for Russia to proceed to capture Ukraine bit by bit? So the uh, the thing that has surprised those of us who watch the Russian military and, and sort of the foreign policy decision making about this is just how terrible the Russian initial plan was and how essentially they've been unable unable to recover from those initial you know operational mistakes, which were based on wildly optimistic assumptions about how weak the Ukrainian government was and how prone to crumbling the Ukrainian military was. And so you saw all these actions that were, you know, essentially based on the idea that with a couple of cruise missiles and some airborne force parachute drops, that the, everything would just crumble and Russia would, you know, waltz into Kiev and it would be sort of like a somewhat more bloody version of Crimea. Mm. And that was just totally off the mark. And as a result, you know, they didn't have the logistics tail ready for this sort of longer war. So, you know, that setback might have proven so debilitating and the Ukrainians' brave resistance that we might already be witnessing a slight modification in Russian war aims. In other words, the way they started out, it would have been hard to imagine the kind of meeting we saw today between the foreign minister of Ukraine and the Russian foreign minister, because it seemed like they were intent on regime change in Ukraine, intent on overthrowing Zelensky's government. But it's there are indications that that perhaps might be moderating. Now, it's not 100 percent guaranteed by any means, but I think, you know, the Russian tactical failures might be having an impact on the extent of their war aims and also, you know, the extent of the economic shock that the Western response has created within Russia. So, you know, I'm I'm slightly more optimistic is not the right word, but I'm, I'm slightly more open to the prospect that Putin might not be 100% intent on pursuing regime change, no matter what the costs. But yes, I think part of this depends on what happens on the battlefield. And part of it depends on what, you know, international negotiation is able to achieve. Yeah. So so it sounds like it's not that it would become in principle impossible for them to continue to conquer Ukraine. But if the costs and the, t- and the length of time become sufficiently large, they might decide to settle for something less through a ceasefire, basically. Yes, I think that's right. Hopefully not just on a temporary basis. You know, the costs are, are are rapidly accruing and it's going to be difficult to pursue this as a long-term proposition. But not impossible. And that's important yeah. to keep in mind that the, the likelihood of a Russian military defeat is quite low. Hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned uh, earlier, a lot of people are now kind of hoping that Putin will be removed from office in a coup or or some other event, I guess, possibly an assassination. You've written that you think that's both unlikely to happen and that if it did happen, it would be about as likely to make the situation worse as to make it better. Can you explain why you think that? So, you know, it's quite tempting to think that given all the, you know, horrible things that have been unleashed by his decisions that this war would will be Putin's immediate undoing. But, you know, the likelihood of, of regime change in the short term is very low. Putin has total control over the elite, over the information space. There is no organized political opposition in Russia because he's destroyed it hmm. or jailed it. And so the outlets for potential 
you know, avenues towards political change in the short term are few and far between. Now, over the medium to long term, I think Putin has put at risk a lot of the core elements of his own legitimacy and particularly the stability, the relative stability that he brought to Russia following the chaos of the 90s experienced by most Russians. And, you know, a lot of those elements of chaos are returning. High inflation, devaluation of the currency, potential default. You know, these are this is like 1998 all over again. And so, you know, with growing popular discontent, it is possible that there will be political instability. But then we get into in the medium term. So not nothing that so short term that it would affect the course of the war. But what happens if there is political instability in Russia? I mean, Russia has a massive repressive apparatus and, you know, it could get quite ugly. And even if Putin is ousted, there's no guarantee that the next one leader is going to be more amenable to, you know, Western sensibilities than he is. That person might be a hardliner, even more hardliner. Hmm. So um, I think it's sort of a it's like trying to win the lottery thinking that, A, you could achieve regime change in Russia, and B, that you could do it in, in such a way that produces a, a beneficial outcome. Yeah. I guess people have not only talked about, you know, hoping that Putin is overthrown, but also talking about trying to instigate it one way or another. That On his face, it seems like that could be extremely risky. It could lead to, you know, a very severe backlash from Putin and his supporters. Is that something yeah, we should so, be concerned about? Absolutely. So the, the challenge right now is that this is rapidly becoming an existential conflict more broadly for Putin and his regime. Hmm. And when leaders are thinking about things in existential terms, they often take quite rash decisions. And since defeat is not, you know, would never, he could never accept, the likelihood of escalation grows the more sort of desperate and existential the conflict becomes. And that's where things could get quite dangerous for sure. Yeah, yeah. What are the US and its allies doing wrong at the moment, if, uh, if anything? Well, you give me lots of opportunities to be critical of Western policy at a moment. <laughs> sort of, but to, to, to start, we should say that a lot of things have gone right. Yeah. Um, so there have been unprecedented coordination between the U.S., the EU, the U.K., and other allies globally on the economic sanctions. The support for the Ukrainian military has been quite robust. Not many people expected the Ukrainian government to and military to have survived this long under Russian assault. Mm. And the global consensus on the unacceptability of Russia's actions is quite strong. So there are a lot of things that have been done right. I think where I'd like to see a little bit more effort is on, you know, looking for off-ramps. I mean, if you look at, so this is not a universal criticism. I think Macron has tried to engage with Putin, as has Schultz at least once, and Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister uh, has actually visited Moscow to try to serve as an intermediary. But we haven't seen the same from the U.S. president. And I think ultimately Putin is the only person in the world who can change the course of Russian behavior. And so we need to be, I think, trying to talk him out of this madness and potentially using all the leverage that has been created by these unprecedented sanctions to you know, compel him to to change his short-term objectives. So if we can use, you know, partial, conditional sanctions relief to end the human suffering in Ukraine, that might be something that is worth considering. Now, you know, it might be possible that Putin will stop at nothing and, and that the prospect of sanctions relief is uninteresting to him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately, this will end with a diplomatic settlement. One of the two parties is unlikely to just 
collapse completely. And so the longer it goes on, before we get there, the worse things are going to be for Ukraine, Ukraine. first and foremost, but also for the rest of the world. Yeah. A big debate over the last couple of days has been whether Poland and the US or NATO, one way or another, should try to deliver MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. Yeah, it seems as of today that the US has kind of gotten cold feet and maybe Poland has as well, because no one wants to be specifically responsible for doing this. And they worry it might be too escalatory. What do you think of that general proposal? So I find it odd that this has become the sort of fixation of the public debate, because it's unclear how much retooling the Polish MiGs would require to be usable for Ukrainians. So first of all, they'd have to rip out all the NATO-compatible avionics and communications uh, equipment that had been installed. Uh, Apparently, the Polish MiGs were modernized in 2013. So, And then they'd have to put in equipment that the Ukrainians would be able to use. And so, you know, that could take weeks, if not months. Meanwhile, there have not been, as far as I know, any cases where, you know, Ukrainian fighters have shot down Russian warplanes. Hmm. Most of the the warplanes that have been lost, as far as I've been able to tell, have been shot down by Ukrainian air defenses. Hmm. So this sort of seems like we're focusing on something that is unlikely to be militarily consequential with this potential for escalatory pathways created by the flying over the border dynamic and, and, you know, Russia potentially shooting them down. So I think it's somewhat of a distraction. I mean, air defenses might be more actually militarily relevant to the Ukrainians right now than fighters. Yeah. Some seemingly serious people advocate shooting down Russia's planes over Ukraine, which they, to me, I think slightly euphemistically and uh, problematically refer to as creating a no-fly zone. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think of that proposal? Well, I mean, if you want to have war with Russia, that's, that's your recipe. It is kind of striking that the, the term no-fly zone is applied to actions that would entail taking out Russian air defenses, shooting Russian planes out of the sky and being involved in a hot war with the country that holds the single largest nuclear arsenal in terms of number of warheads. Hmm. So, you know, I think it it comes from a place of wanting to do something to stop this, which is totally understandable, but it does not seem to me like a recipe for anything other than an, an expansion of the conflict. And that's the balance that Western governments are facing right now, how to help Ukraine without actually enlarging the war. And a no-fly zone clearly would do that. So... I just think that, you know, in part, this also has to do with the insistence of of Zelensky and his government that this is the way forward. But it just does not seem likely to me, or, or nor would it be a good idea if it were pursued. Yeah. Yeah, because of the risk that shooting down Russian jets over Ukraine would rapidly escalate to a massive nuclear war or even a massive conventional war, it just it strikes me as one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in my life, like one of the most dangerous policy proposals I've ever heard seriously put forward. I guess I'm like glad that the closer you get to Biden or the closer you get to serious decision makers, the less keen they, they seem to be on it. But That's should right. we actually worry that like there seems to be like actual support among like people who don't know very much about this issue for this proposal? Is it possible that it could somehow like slip through in, in, in future if there's like changeover in personnel or something? You know, the professional military, I would be in this country, at least would be against it. I imagine that's true in most NATO countries. Mm. What I think you're identifying, though, is that there is a dynamic going on here where the public outrage about Russia's horrific actions in Ukraine is driving policy in a way that I hadn't anticipated. You know, even just the pace of the sanctions, we went to 11 out of 10 in like two days, farther than many expected we'd ever get with 
you know, in, in short order. And I think the same is true about these military assistance initiatives. We're just trying to find, do something because there's a public demand for action. Mm. So that's what worries me, that the sort of public outrage that's being channeled in Western democracies through political systems could result in decisions that prove, you know, Russian. ultimately unwise. I don't think we're there yet. And I think it, it is true that senior decision makers in, in the U.S. administration here now are quite sober minded and conscious of avoiding escalation. And you can see that manifested practically with the creation of this deconfliction mechanism, uh, the bilateral U.S.-Russia sort of military to military communications channel to avoid accidents in the context of the war in Ukraine, which the Biden administration apparently proposed immediately after the war started, took the Russians, you know, over a week to pick up the phone. But now that is operational, apparently. So I think, you know, there is a danger of governments trying to deal with this public outrage in ways that are sort of gradually getting us to a more and more escalatory place. Mm. And maybe, you know, in a way, the MIGs were kind of like the way of placating the demand for a no-fly zone. Mm. Um, Yeah. I know in in the U.S. right now, the administration is trying to get ahead of Congress forcing its hand in a number of ways. Interesting. Uh, so, so yeah, it's interesting. So you're saying that Congress is potentially, I guess, maybe members of Congress like know less about foreign policy potentially. And so they like don't appreciate the trade-offs quite as seriously as like the military folks or the people at Department of State would. And so they could potentially try to push the administration to do more than they think is wise. That is often the dynamic, not necessarily because they know less, but because they're, you know, their their equities are different, so to speak. They're not, in, you know, the ones running US foreign policy. They're trying to push the executive branch in various ways. And so the consequences are not theirs to deal with. That is often the dynamic here that we have some more hawkish views or a desire to do more coming from Congress and a more reticent executive branch in different parties and different administrations. Congress always seems to be a bit more hawkish. How worried are you about the possibility that this conflict could result in a major nuclear exchange between Russia and NATO? So I think the risks of that are obviously more elevated than they were a month ago. Mm. However, there are a lot of intermediate steps. So I don't think that the if this conflict is contained to Ukraine, I don't see it going nuclear because Russia has a huge number of conventional capabilities that it hasn't deployed yet or employed. And, you know, it's going to take a while for them to work through all those before they even need to think about nuclear use. Where nuclear use comes in, I think, is if Russia perceives a, you know, NATO potentially planning to intervene in the conflict in Ukraine. Right. And I mean, I think a point to make here is that the very fact that Russia has lost so much of its combat ready forces in Ukraine and has expended so many conventional missiles makes escalation to the nuclear level, if there is to be a conflict with NATO, actually much more, you know, it would happen earlier because they have fewer other options. You know, most of their combat-ready military and even their Navy is engaged in this. So it's the Russia-NATO escalation dynamic, I think, that could bring in the nuclear peace. That would start, I think, with non-strategic nuclear weapon use, which is another term for, you know, battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons, of which Russia have, you know, has 2,000, at least, warheads. And a lot of its missile platforms are, you know, dual capable. So that's, I think, what worries me, because 
Russia sees itself as the weaker party vis-a-vis NATO. And if NATO were to enter the conflict, mm-hmm. uh, I think the kind of sense that they would need to resort to that would would increase. Yeah, yeah. Getting to a strategic nuclear exchange is, you know, there would be a few more rungs up the escalation ladder. But what I worry about is the non-strategic piece. I see. Although they could feel the need to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield for some reason, and then that could escalate. Not in Ukraine, but, you know, to preempt a NATO intervention that they see as imminent. Yeah. To respond to a NATO intervention that actually occurs. Those are the kinds of scenarios that I would imagine would prompt that. Yeah. I don't think they're looking to start a war with NATO. That's an important point to make. You know, Russia right now got their hands is not in a position to be fighting one, let alone, you know, it's it's not going to seek that out. So what I worry about is they're perceiving that mm. NATO would be on the verge of intervening and, and taking steps preemptively. Yeah. So none of the paths to a major nuclear exchange seem likely to me, but there's like various different like long shot scenarios that slightly concern me. I guess one, you could imagine that some action on the part of NATO is viewed as like far more escalatory by Russia than is expected. And then you get like another cycle in the other direction, like with the delivery of the MiGs might be viewed as like very escalatory by Russia, whereas we thought it was merely somewhat escalatory. And then they do something that we perceive as like more escalatory than they thought it was in return. And so it goes on. Uh, I guess another one, I guess it's possible that Putin could really have a screw loose. Like that's not really my perception, but I wouldn't completely rule it out that something could be going wrong with with him psychologically. And I guess, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it is possible that in some flight of madness, we do decide to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine at some point because the pressure becomes, the public pressure becomes too great. Oh, and I guess like also cyber cyber attacks could be viewed again as like more escalatory than, than is intended and then they could like go out of control. Any thoughts on that? So I think it's important to differentiate between, you know, the kind of scenario that I was talking about, which is essentially a deliberate kinetic escalation to a Russia-NATO conflict on the assumption that NATO is on the verge of intervening or, in fact, is intervening. And the scenario that you're alluding to, which I would call the sort of escalation spiral. So that, you know, could get us to a kinetic conflict, but I think it would probably start non-kinetically. And frankly, we might already be on the verge of that. It would be very surprising to me if Russia did not retaliate for the sanctions in some way. Mm. And that could certainly begin with non-kinetic actions like Cyber attacks. I mean, if a criminal ransomware gang can shut down this largest pipeline on the U.S. East Coast for almost a week uh, last summer, I presume that the Russian state can do a whole lot worse. Mm. And, you know, cyber is the means by which Russia can affect Western homelands in the same way that our sanctions have dramatically affected their homeland. Yeah. And then you could see things spiraling out of control from there because you can't really, you know, we've seen that cyber attacks are hard to contain you know, and there might be retaliation against Russia and then Russia might retaliate again. And then you could see how this could escalate out of control, yeah. given the uh, that everyone is on alert and looking to see if the other is going to take the first move. Just creates an environment that's ripe for that kind of tit for tat escalatory spiral. Um, so that does worry me as well. Yeah. How worried should we be about that? I mean, it sounds very concerning to me. Well, it, it is it is concerning, I think. And this is going to be a challenge, actually, for the long term, assuming there isn't, you know, political change in Russia, which, like I said, I think in the short term is low probability. You know, we've basically, you know, and you can say perfectly justified, put Russia in a place where it has no stake in its relations with Western countries and increasingly little stake in the global economy. Mm. So doing damage to one or both is not as costly as it might have been, you know, two weeks ago for Russia. And, you know, as I said, in this sort of existential conflict, perceived existential conflict, 
the need to hit back might be irresistible. Now, what we, the West, do in response to that is another story. And so that we have some say in this. But that kind of escalatory spiral is one that I think a lot of policymakers in Western governments are actively, you know, contemplating, concerned about and on the lookout for. Mm. So we shall see. You know, one thing that's interesting about cyber capabilities so far in this conflict is that they've been up until like the last few days relatively inconsequential. A lot of us would have assumed that, for example, there would have been huge cyber attacks before the kinetic conflict began. And while there were some, they weren't as significant as one might have expected. So, you know, it remains an open question. But it's hard for me to imagine that Russia doesn't take steps to respond. I mean, these sanctions, like I said, were really not only an 11 out of 10, but they've also been imposed in a way that exclusively frames them as punishment which means that Russia doesn't have any reason to think that anything it could do could get itself out from under them. Mm. So, I mean, that's another challenge I think we have going forward. Yeah. I guess another scenario we haven't even talked about is uh, like in previous decades, we've seen lots of false alarms where one country thought they were under attack by the other one way or another. And then they decided not to retaliate because they assumed it was a false alarm. But if you've got a serious false alarm today, it's not so obvious that people would give the benefit of the doubt to that and decide to just hold back. Um, you could have like an accidental exchange or something that escalates very quickly by accident, basically. Yes. So that's what that deconfliction mechanism that I mentioned, uh, that's why I'm very glad that it's been set up. Mm. Because having that kind of ability to get the other side on the phone and clarify a situation that might, you know, have been a have been a mistake. I mean, that is important. Yeah, it could be. I'm not sure whether it'd be credible if uh, if you thought the missiles were incoming, but then they've called you up and said, uh, no, they're not. I'm not sure quite how that conversation goes down. Well, I I guess what I'm getting at is that there's a sort of tactical question about actions occurring in and around Ukraine. Yeah. Not, not you know, thousands of missiles right. flying over the North Pole. But what if one errant cruise missile ends up, you know, in Poland or Hungary? Yeah. And it was just a targeting error and yeah, just right. landed in the forest somewhere. It would, it, it, that's the kind of thing that a deconfliction mechanism can address. Yeah. What should NATO be sure not to do in order to avoid escalating the conflict and drawing in more parties? Well, I mean, the first thing I think, which doesn't seem to be too controversial, at least among the governments right now, is intervening directly, Mm. (laughs) militarily, getting involved. Um, I think we, you know, there's been a lot of publicity surrounding the military assistance, Mm. which is counterintuitive to me because it's, you know, uh, Russia reads the papers too. (laughs) Um, And so I think this should be done as covertly as possible and as discreetly as possible. And in a coordinated fashion so that we're not having these big public kerfuffles like has been the case with these MiGs recently with Poland. You know, those are a couple of things. Um, And I think keeping communication lines open is very important at the political level as well. Mm. And, you know, clearly signaling the limits of our, uh, of what we're prepared to do. Mm. And I think actually governments have been pretty good about that part, um, at least. It sounds like if we get into a kind of tit for tat using things like cyber attacks that we should try to like if they go one then we should go 0.8 so to speak so that we lower the risk that they will then retaliate even higher and 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 you like want to basically retaliate but not quite as much so that it can't just keep increasing that's right i mean you know escalation spirals do involve decisions at each point right Mm. to hit back harder it just depends on how serious a potential russian attack might be you know if they take down Wall Street or something or, or the, you know, 
yeah. utilities. It's going to be hard to Stand by. resist the uh, demand to retaliate. But mm-hmm. if it's more targeted than that, you know, I think that decision makers will be inclined to take into account the potential for escalation. Yeah. Yeah. I, we do have some control over this, of course. Do you think it could make any sense for remote workers to consider relocating out of major cities that are highly likely to be targeted if there is a nuclear exchange? Or would that be uh, excessive caution or more costly than it's worth? I mean, I think in NATO countries, we're, we're just a long way away from having to worry about that, okay. um, if ever. So I wouldn't be taking any changes to any, anyone's personal lives in really any NATO country at okay. the moment. I think we'll, we'll, there'll be a fair amount of warning if things start getting out of control. Um, okay. It's not going to be instantaneous like that. Yeah. So I would not, <laughs> I'm not changing action. anything that I do. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything listeners to this show can do to reduce the probability that nuclear weapons are used in this conflict? I guess keeping in mind that like a non-trivial number work in government and some of them work in foreign policy and so on. So they might have some actions available to them that a random person might not. Well, you know, there there's a public pressure for escalatory steps is quite significant right now. Mm-hmm. And while it is hard to, you know, a- advocating against them is doesn't have the same moral context, perhaps, as advocating for them. In other words, trying to help the Ukrainians seems like the right thing to do right now. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there are efforts, you know, to call for moderation. And, you know, those those are the kinds of things that people can support. So, yeah, I guess maybe joining public calls for moderation might be one thing to consider. Yeah, but I guess it sounds like the most important people are in the White House. It's a little bit hard for the general public to to participate in this. Well, yes, but like we just discussed, the the White House is responsive to pressure from Congress and Congress is responsive to pressure from its constituents. Mm. So it does matter that like the general public as a whole like has a broad understanding of the risks that they're taking if uh, if things are escalated. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have a feeling that's probably true in other western governments as well that yeah, parliaments do matter at least in terms of the kind of pressure they can bring to bear. Yeah. So Russia, as of recently, is claiming falsely that they that during the war they found a joint Ukrainian and U.S. biological weapons facility or like some some research going on of that kind. Should we worry about Russia using biological or chemical weapons, perhaps in an attack that they then blame on the Ukrainians? Because as, as I understand it, they've they've done things along those lines during the Syrian civil war. Uh, this is very very concerning and is you know really a red flag. I would be quite concerned about what. Russia does in the coming days uh, in this context and be very wary of any Russian claims about Ukrainian WMD use because they don't have any. This whole like U.S. labs conspiracy theory thing is something that the Russian state has has spent a lot of time building up within Russia in recent years. It was even more disconcerting that China has publicly sort of Indulged supported it. it. Yeah. So, you know, I... I I think this is a sign for a cause for a lot of concern. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is not implausible because of the way the, the failure of the initial Russian military operation, you know, basically incentivizes these kinds of escalatory steps to to end it faster because they're, mm. you know, they're being of how badly they screwed up the initial. Yeah. 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 Not just embarrassed, but they were the military setback created by that initial failure, I think, is is proven hard to recover from. Mm. If you were an ordinary Ukrainian living in, in Ukraine, what outcome, or like what realistic outcome would you hope for from, from the war? Well, what I would hope for in the, in the short term would be a ceasefire. 
and, you know, an end to the active fighting. Um, I think that really needs to be a top consideration at the moment. You know, I think that what, of course, I'd want my elected government in control of my country Mm. and I would want Russian troops out. But if it takes, uh, from my perspective, some sort of alternative, you know, non-alignment arrangement to get that, that would seem at this point like a deal worth taking. I don't know if it's out there because Russia seems to have more far-reaching objectives than just that. Hmm. But, you know, average Ukrainians are, the, are suffering a lot right now and their country is being destroyed. So I think... I would imagine if I were one of them and my friends there, they want this fighting ended and they want not to have a Russian imposed regime. Yeah. So let, okay, let, let's talk about that for a bit now, because I feel a little bit like the fighters on the ground are being let down by the lack of strategic realism or the lack of like consideration of actually just being completely pragmatic and saying, what deal can we strike to end this war and produce like a, mm-hmm. a piece that like Ukraine can like live with, even if it's not what they want exactly. So it seems like the ideal outcome would be some kind of stable settlement that would be good enough from Russia's point of view that they're not going to invade Ukraine again in future. Because after all, like Russia's still going to be around, still going to have a massive military, still going to be on the border of Ukraine for <laughs> the foreseeable Indeed. future. And so the question is, like, is there any is there any room for a negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine that both parties would find acceptable? Like at this point, is that imaginable? So I agree that there's a war optimism that is setting in among some in Ukraine. And of course, there's an effort to boost morale here too. But it's it's caught on in the West as well. And I think that that is problematic because the longer this war goes on, the more Ukrainians will suffer. And frankly, I don't think the odds of their victory becoming more likely is increase over time. I think it's the opposite. Hmm. But I fear that some believe that time is on the Ukrainian side and that the consequences of that assumption are a protracted, bloody, brutal war. So what what could a settlement look like? Well, I think we're seeing some glimpses of that. Part of it is going to, you know, one of the Russian demands that have been put out there is, is, is the non-alignment neutrality issue, which seems to me like the easiest. And in fact, Zelensky has basically said that he's willing to contemplate it. Um, the other pieces are harder. Russia has been demanding Ukrainian recognition of the Crimea annexation and the quote-unquote independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, there it's harder for me to see how any Ukrainian government could agree to that Hmm. because, you know, Russians are demanding essentially that those regions be quote-unquote independent within their full regional boundaries, which go far beyond the line of contact as it was before this war began on February 24th. Hmm. So, if they're willing to, the Russians are willing to moderate their goals somewhat here. I mean, that the Donbass seems to be the hardest one uh, not to crack, but there's going to have to be some concessions and the Russians are going to have to also be willing to uh, let go of some of their most ambitious aims in terms of ousting the, the Ukrainian government and taking control of the country. And it just doesn't seem that that's likely to happen right now, even if they were to apply much more firepower. So, I'm I'm dancing around this because I don't really have a good answer. Um, and I think it's going to be painful for many Ukrainians to see these kinds of concessions being put on the table. But I, I see little alternative. The, one other way that potentially we get the Russians off their maximalist goals is to provide incentives, not just disincentives in the form of the military consequences of their actions, but namely 
you know, graduated sanctions relief yeah. in return for Russia accepting, I don't know, Ukraine's control over, you know, at least up to the line of contact as it was before, if not all of Don- mm. Donetsk and Luhansk. I'm just throwing something out there. Yeah. We do have a lot of leverage, we the West now, because of the sort of stranglehold that we've created on the Russian economy. And so if it takes some, you know, deploying that leverage to achieve a sustainable settlement that avoids more human suffering and displacement, I think that would be better than a protracted, brutal war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not Ukrainian and I haven't had to live with the threat of Russian invasion my entire life or like, you know, throughout the 20th century. But my guess is that if I was in, if I was Ukrainian, I would be willing to settle for some agreement to basically not join, not make an, an association agreement with NATO or with the EU, and also not to join, not join up with some like Russian organization in order to reduce the risk that my country is like reduced to rubble and like non-functional for the foreseeable future. That seems to me like a trade probably worth making. And I guess both the Ukrainians and people in the West didn't want to make this deal before, I think in part because they thought that Russia was bluffing. But now knowing like what an incredible price Russia is willing to pay in order to extract that kind of concession, it seems like it's just not worth the cost to avoid it, or at least like at least not in the short run. Yeah, I think the Zelensky government would take that deal, but I'm not sure that the Russians are going to settle for that now. I see. They they have more, they put more on the table. And having taken this really unfortunate step of recognizing the independence of these separatist republics. It's hard to walk back. You know, it's exactly. And I, so that is a nut that seems quite hard to crack. I think if it were just on the neutrality issue now, you know, you, if Ukraine were to have non-aligned status and everything would go back to the way it was in terms of Russian withdrawal and um, Ukrainian territorial control, that, you know, might be somewhat plausible, but it's the it's the demands beyond that that I think are the sticking point, probably the big sticking points. Yeah, it seems like Ukraine, well, like uh, multiple parties here might have messed up in the past. If there was an agreement that could have avoided this war, that ultimately is probably might even be preferable from like multiple people's points of view than, than like what is even achievable now that maybe those demands should have been taken more seriously. And we maybe if we'd realized that Russia was actually fully committed to an invasion of this kind, we might might have taken them more seriously. Well, you know, before the war, I thought that this was going, you know, that based on what, the way the Russian military was preparing and the rhetoric of the Russian leadership, this seemed quite likely to me. Uh, it seemed likely to me since the end of November. And, um, you know, I, I wrote back then that, you know, if implementing Minsk is all it takes to avoid this outcome, we should do it, I mean, you know, mm. and push the Ukrainians to do it. Now, I should stipulate that it might be the case that Putin decided to do this. And there was nothing that, that anyone could do uh, once he made that decision to talk him out of it. That might be the case, but I don't think we really fully tested that proposition. And, you know, the things that seemed unacceptable as prices to pay, so to speak, to avoid this outcome, now, from my perspective, are, are pittance compared to the costs the of this thing. conflict. And not just for Russia and Ukraine, but really for the world. I mean, this is going to create not only economic, but, you know, global waves that will be felt for, I mean, I can't imagine. Decades, yeah. Yes. I mean, like, I don't even know what the international system looks like if, you know, a player of Russia's significance is essentially North Koreaizing itself, you know? Um, yeah. And it's uh, I don't know how the UN functions. I don't, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are unclear about how the world works, as in the international system at least, after this. So the costs were going to be tremendous. Now, the counter argument to that that I got 
was that, well, you know, that's essentially giving into extortion. Yeah. That uh, Putin was basically pointing a gun at Ukraine's head and saying, pay up or I'll shoot. And, you know, it is true. We were being extorted. <laughs> but like sometimes you have to pay to avoid the you know, the hostage taker killing the hostage. Yeah. So and and even today, I think there are worries that any lessening of the pressure that's being put on Russia would again be rewarding aggression. So I think we're we're in this trap a little bit about that because, well, the, of Russia's creation, of course, because they've decided to take such extreme measures to pursue their interests. But, um, you know, it doesn't make the consequences any less significant, the fact that they are taking these extreme measures. Yeah, it seems easy to get stuck at a gridlock where one side perceives like any concession as rewarding aggression and extortion and the other side views not accepting something as basically showing weakness and capitulating and like showing that they're a weak country that doesn't stick up for their like core interests. And then just like neither side is willing to give up because of these broader signaling and reputational concerns. And so you <laughs> you end up in a war. Exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of a recipe for escalation. I would also say the Russian perception is that not only would giving in be capitulation, but that they tried everything else hmm. from their perspective. You yeah. know, we can disagree with that, but that they spent seven years trying to implement an agreement that they thought would be, you know, enough for them to militarily withdraw from Ukraine and couldn't get anywhere. And so, you know, they felt the need to act. That does not justify what they did by any means, but I think that they, that was their perception. Hmm. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the sort of political and strategic demands on both sides are, you can't really see the Venn diagram at the moment. Yeah. Something that really has troubled me over the last few weeks is I feel like a few weeks ago, people were able to talk calmly and rationally about like what they thought Russia wanted and like what might appease them. And it seems like that conversation has become much more difficult, that people are unwilling to have that conversation because they're worried about effectively being accused of being Putin sympathizers or Russia sympathizers for like laying out what like rationalist goals they might have for the war. Is that something that uh, you notice or are worried by? Yeah, I mean, I think the horror of what Russia is doing is clouding, I think, a lot of people's judgments. And we're in a situation where an actor that three weeks ago was like, you know, an adversary, but a country that we were negotiating with and, you know, interacting with in any number of different ways from, you know, joint ventures between BP and Rosneft to arms control, etc., to you know, basically saying that this is a man who wants to recreate the Soviet Union and subjugate his neighbors at all costs. And there's a bit of a mismatch there. I mean, <laughs> did everything change in a week? And so, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to put one in the mindset of a leader who takes it, a decision to carry out a war like this. Yeah. But that I think, unfortunately, we have to, understanding that perspective is even more important now. Because, you know, it's their mindset that will be taking the key decisions, not ours. But yes, I do think that there's a, you know, it's hard to square what we make of Putin now with what we were making of him a month ago, two weeks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Why hasn't the US and other countries kind of promised to remove the economic sanctions if Russia withdraws from Ukraine? It seems like we're missing out on an opportunity to create a strong incentive to end the conflict by not doing that. So that has been said in in asides, essentially, like that if Russia fully withdraws. But the problem was, I think, that we tried to do something different here, which was really try to do sanctions as deterrence, which entailed being quite transparent about what the threat was. Hmm. So, you know, a deterrent threat is a threat 
that needs to be realized if the other party takes the action you're trying to deter. But the other party needs to know what you're threatening in order, so as to weigh the costs, right? Mm. And so the U.S. particularly was very transparent about what was on the table in terms of these technology sanctions, the potential for going after the central bank, the, big, the other big state-owned banks. And deterrence failed, mm. clearly. But then we were in a situation where once deterrence fails, what you're doing is punishment, by definition, of you know, how you do deterrence. And if it's punishment... It's hard to frame that as leverage or to link it to particular conditions because, you know, normally you implement sanctions in order to lift them because you're trying to achieve a change in, in another state's behavior. Here, we've implemented sanctions because of something Russian, Russia did that it can't really undo. Mm. It can't uninvade Ukraine. It can withdraw. But so that, I think, has been the challenge. And, you know, now that these things have been linked two Russian actions that can't be undone, it's hard both to credibly communicate the conditions for sanctions relief and to explain to your publics why you're, mm. you know, letting up the pressure on somebody who did all these horrible things or some a country that did all these horrible things. Yeah, makes sense. Would it be good for the world for Sweden and or Finland to join NATO? So I think doing this in the context of this war would be a mistake. Mm. That said... You know, over the medium to long term, well, so this is a real tough balance here now. And, you know, I think from what I understand, the war has essentially caused a domestic political crisis in Finland mm. related to this issue. And, you know, the, the problem is that it's easy to see how Russia would respond to that um, yeah. militarily. And Finland would be particularly vulnerable in the period, you know, between when it decides it wants to do this and when it becomes a reality, when it doesn't have security guarantees. And Finland and Sweden would want to do this together. Sounds hard. <laughs> Finland is actually a quite capable military, so it would add, you know, in, in the abstract to the alliance's capabilities. So it, it's, it's a really tough question. You know, I think the potential for it to spark escalation is real, hmm. but the Finnish people wanting this now is totally understandable. understandable. Yeah. Okay, a final question. Setting aside what we would like to happen or what we think would be rational to happen, what's the most likely situation for us to be looking at in three months' time in, in Ukraine? So this is the challenge that I've been struggling with myself, which is that I can't see what a stable endgame looks like, both in terms of what happens inside Ukraine, in Russia, and globally. So in three months from now, I mean, okay, a Russia-imposed political order is not going to be a stable one in Ukraine. That's clear. Is, you know, something short of that likely to emerge? It is possible. In other words, some negotiated settlement. But how then you deal with the Russian military presence that's already there in at least the previously occupied areas in the Donbass and in Crimea, mm. it's just I, I'm having trouble com computing all of that. And then we get to the question about Russia in terms of stability. Like these sanctions are really extraordinarily significant in terms of their impact on Russia. And it's not going to make Russia implode, but it will create significant economic dislocation, which could have political knock-on effects. And by the way, not just the sanctions, but the sort of self-sanctioning of, mm -hmm. of Western companies who have divested or closed their operations and so on. And so it's hard for me to see what a stable economic situation in Russia looks like three, six, nine, 12 months from now. And then there's the question about the international system. Like, what are we, what's our, what, what are relations with Russia look like in three months? It's hard to picture right now, given that we're 
basically banning any interaction with Russians of any sort. But if if that is the policy, then what happens to international institutions? What happens to, you know, even bilateral and multilateral mechanisms that ensure stability? It's just, it, it's hard to compute. And that, that, that was <laughs> getting back to the why I thought every effort should be made to try to make a deal before this happened is that the consequences of this are sort of mind boggling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, hard to get your head around. Yeah. I mean, my prejudice, which I guess is easy for me to hold because I don't, I'm not Ukrainian and I don't have to live with it, is that this war is just so destructive and was so destructive in general that people should be willing to make more concessions to avoid them than they are tempted to, to do. And I guess there's a lot of resistance to that because of these like reputational issues and issues of uh, honor and not wanting to seem like you're weak and vulnerable. But yeah, I, I it's, yes, it's, and also not wanting to set precedents right. that could be used by other potential aggressors in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult one. All right, yeah, I know you've got a million demands in your time at the moment. You're a very in demand person, so we'll, we'll let you go. You've been uh, yeah very generous to talk with us for this long. Uh, it's been super informative, and more more broadly, I'm just like super grateful for your online presence and your presence on Twitter and the articles you're you're producing. I think you're you're a voice you're a voice of sanity on this on, on on this topic, and I've been I've learned a lot from from reading your content, and I'm so glad that there's people like you who've been working on this topic for a very long time, and not just people like me who arrived at it two or three weeks ago. <laughs> so the, the the difference in quality well, really analysis is very that. clear. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. My guest today has been Samuel Cherup. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Samuel. It's been my pleasure. At least to me, that was a fairly depressing, or I guess at best a sobering conversation. It really isn't clear, at least to me, how this war is going to end, which means it's a live possibility that it could drag on for months, or God forbid, years, I suppose. In the meantime, so long as it continues, as Sam and I uh, kind of listed earlier, there are a lot of ways that it could escalate to involve more countries or or involve uh, weapons of mass destruction. And even if it doesn't do that, it would, is evidently catastrophic for the lives of Ukrainians. In my opinion, we need to keep up the pressure on Western governments, that is the governments of uh, listeners to this show mostly, not to take grave risks and instead stay the course on the largely measured approach that has been taken so far. It's also essential to understand what is going on in Putin's head as much as possible, as he's the only person who can currently bring a sane end to this to this incredibly volatile situation. It seems to me like Sam's experience in this area gives him a much better ability to guess at what is going on in Putin's head than folks like me who lack uh, Russia-specific domain knowledge. So I think that we should listen to Sam and people who like him very carefully. In the blog post associated with this episode, you can find a couple of dozen links to some of the most informative uh, articles and podcasts and other resources that that I got the chance to look at when I was preparing for this episode, and more broadly, just trying to make sense of what, what's been going on in Ukraine over the last two weeks. Obviously, I don't agree with all of the things in all of the articles, because plenty of them disagree with one another. But if you'd like some further readings in order to try to make more sense of what's happening and also see the, the range of opinions that are out there, then I can definitely recommend that list as a, as a source to, to find some good stuff. We'll probably have more episodes on this conflict and the threat of great power wars more broadly in the months to come. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited, in this case, very swiftly by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.